I'd like to introduce you to a prize-winning science journalist, Ed Yong. It was Ed's coverage of the pandemic for The Atlantic that first alerted us to his work, and it was this reporting that also earned him the Pulitzer. But I have to say, it's Ed's writing about the animal kingdom that really got us hooked. His most recent book, An Immense World, opens the mind to the vastly different way that animals experience our world. Oh, and his uh, TED talk about uh, mind-controlling parasites. Well, uh, listen and learn. Ed's uh, coming out to Australia very soon. He's appearing at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne on October the 14th. Ed, uh, thanks for joining the Little Widers program. It's an odd thing that you got into science journalism given that you started off doing a PhD in molecular biology and found that you were, as you say, a terrible scientist. Yeah, that's right. Um, I was uh, just catastrophically bad at actually doing research. (laughs) And uh, during my uh, truly horrendous failures at that, uh, I realised that I was much, much happier and much better at uh, writing and talking about science than actually doing it. Tell me about your uh, blog, Not Exactly Rocket Science, which you started in, oh, 2006. So that was just uh, my way of trying to get into science writing, to develop some practice at the skills. And I was writing about all kinds of things, about how the brain works, about um, evolution, about genetics, and a lot about the weird and wonderful ways in which animals make a living. And that's something that I've been always fascinated with and is obviously the subject of um, An Immense World. Well, it caught on, didn't it? Uh, Were you surprised by how quickly the blog and your reputation grew? Um, You know, you always hope that these things will take off, um, but uh, most things don't, right? Um, The the blog was really an attempt to see if I was actually any good at this um, and to just like practice flexing that that writing muscle to to scratch that itch that, um, that I really had. Okay, now I mentioned your uh, 2014 TED Talk. It's had almost uh, 2 million views on YouTube. Tell the listener what it was about. So the talk was about mind-controlling parasites. Um, Parasites are actually extremely common. There are lots of creatures that can uh, uh, infect their hosts and make a living from them. Uh, but there are a lot of them that actually change the behavior of those hosts. So there are um, fungi that control um, ants. Uh, there are worms that make crickets um, suicidal. The crickets drown themselves, and the worms get uh, get out into the water where they need to where they need to thrive. There's a thing called Toxoplasma gondii, uh, which is a parasite um, that uh, infects rats and makes them. Uh, very bold and makes them run towards cats. Uh, It does that because cats are its final hosts, the one in which it needs to reproduce. So, in effect, it turns the rat into a marionette. That's right, yeah. It it, it puppet masters the uh, rodent's brain and turns it into a cat-seeking missile for its own benefit and, of course, to, uh, to the rodent's extreme detriment. Tell me about the emerald cockroach wasp. 
So this is a beautiful insect that finds cockroaches and stings them. The sting um, doesn't kill the cockroach, but does render it docile. So the wasp can then walk the roach to its lair, whereupon it lays an egg on the roach. The egg hatches into a wasp larva, which then devours the cockroach from the inside out. Um, you know, cockroaches are hard to catch, right? They they often run away from stuff like this, but there's something about the sting that changes its behavior, that controls its mind and turns it into um, a creature that you could just walk <laughs> like a dog on a leash. It's often said that the cockroach will be the only survivor after nuclear war, but they don't survive the emerald cockroach wasp. Right, if they are the only survivor, then the wasp will be right there with them. Yeah, well, okay. Now, let's have a segue to talk about uh, your latest book, An Immense World. What made you want to write a book about animal senses? So I think the way animals sense the world around them is incredibly fascinating, uh, scientifically and philosophically. Like At the core of this book is this concept called Umwelt, the idea that all animals have their own sensory bubble, their own set of sights and sounds and textures and smells that they can perceive, but that another creature might not be able to. So I could be sitting here in my room with my dog or with the birds outside me. We'd be in the same physical space, but have radically different experiences of that space. I think that is one of the most profound concepts in biology because it is humbling. It tells us that our experience of the world is only ever partial but it is also expansive for the same reason. It tells us that there's so much wonder and magic to be found in all the spaces around us, including extremely familiar ones, if only we consider those spaces through the senses of other creatures. I like this word, unwelt. Tell me more about it. Who, uh, who defined and popularised the term? It was a German zoologist named Jakob von Uxkel, um, and he popularized it in the early 20th century. The, the word Umwelt actually is just German for environment. But, you know, as I said, it's not the physical environment, right? It's not like the chair that I'm currently sitting on. My Umwelt is the slice of reality that I can perceive. It is only ever a thin slice. You know, my perception of the world is always going to be incomplete. Um, and very different to what other animals can perceive. And that leads to the the fact, the simple and amazing fact, that a multitude of creatures could be in the same place and have completely different Unwelten. Uh, absolutely. So, for example, um, in songbirds uh, like robins or silver eyes um, can detect the magnetic field of the earth itself that we need compasses and technology to detect. Um, many animals can detect the electric fields given off by living things that we can't. Um, sharks do this. Platypuses do this. Um, dogs can uh, smell things in the world around us that we can't detect. Any dog owner who's walked with their dog knows this very well when their dog is trotting along very happily and then just grinds to a halt and furiously investigates a bit of pavement or sidewalk that is clearly bursting with scent that we can't detect. So we've long subscribed to Aristotle's uh, idea that there are only five senses. This is a vast underestimate. 
It's a vast underestimate, right? For across the animal kingdom, there are other sensors that we don't have. We've talked about electric and magnetic fields. Seals can detect what's called hydrodynamic weights. So that's the trails, the currents that a fish will leave as it swims through the water that you know we don't feel. Um, a rattlesnake can sense the infrared radiation given off by warm-blooded prey and can use that to uh, hunt and strike a mouse even in pitch blackness. Um, so yeah, there are many more senses. And even for humans, you know, there are a couple that, that Aristotle missed. There's proprioception, which is how if you close your eyes, you know where your arms and legs are. This, this five senses idea is quite antiquated. I suddenly recall doing a program decades ago on, uh, on the visual the visual world of various creatures and the great difference between, for example, a wedge-tailed eagle who's got a sort of a telescopic uh, centre to the eye and a goldfish that uh, sees a radiantly beautiful world beyond our realm. Yeah, that's right. So the wedge-tailed eagle is a, is a great example. It uh, probably has the sharpest eyes in the animal kingdom. Um, in one of the only groups of animals that uh, have vision sharper than we do. Uh, the thing is, if you have incredibly sharp eyes, um, you are almost always going to be poor at seeing at night. Like eyes can either be good at high resolution vision or they can be sensitive and work well in the dark. And they can never do both of those things, which is why there are no nocturnal eagles. Um, but it's why, you know, animals that thrive in the darkness, things like giant squid, which have eyes the size of soccer balls, um, you know, don't have very re uh, high resolution vision, but can see in conditions that look black and imperceptible to us. I want to get back to you and your dog and ask you a very personal question, Ed. Uh, why have you got down on your hands and knees to sniff like your dog? Well, I did that one time uh, for uh, an experiment that's part of the book um, to just show that uh, as part of an experiment that a, a uh, woman named Alexandra Horowitz was running to show that humans actually have a really decent sense of smell. We, we just don't use our, smell in, our uh, sense of smell in the same way. But one thing that's very different from us and a dog is that our sense of smell is very flickering. So every time I exhale, uh, if I'm following uh, a scented piece of string, I lose the smell. I lose the trail. My dog, on the other hand, um, doesn't. Uh, and that's for many reasons. Um, if you've ever looked at a dog's nose, you'll see its nostrils curve round to the side. Those side slits, whenever a dog exhales, they create these swirling vortices of air that sweep molecules on the ground into the nose. So no matter whether the dog is breathing in or breathing out, it's getting this constant conveyor belt of odour into its head. Hence your uh, parallel with uh, social media for scent. <laughs> right. Well, that parallel is different. So, so um, when dogs, when you walk dogs, um, they will often sniff patches of pee that other dogs have left behind. Uh, and that, to me, is very similar to social media. That is a dog checking up on its acquaintances who aren't immediately next to it um, to work out what they've been up to, uh, what their health is like, maybe what they've eaten recently. It's 
a way it's it's a it shows us that dogs exist in this world where smell provides a huge amount of information and information on other individuals who might have who might not be around right now um, and uh, who might have passed by some time ago in in the same way that social media does for us. I'm talking to Ed Yong, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and his latest book is An Immense World. Let's go from an immense world all the way down to the snake's tongue. It has to be one of uh, nature's least likely uh, smell organs. Yeah, everyone think, thinks that it's a tongue, so it must taste, but it does, in fact, smell. And um, it is a phenomenal organ of smell. So every time a snake sticks its tongue out, it flicks the air. That flick creates two rotating fans that suck in odors from the air around the snake and concentrate them on the tips. And the snake can then compare the amount of uh, chemicals on the two tips of its tongue to work out where the smell is coming from. The forked tongue allows the snake to smell in stereo, much like our two eyes give us binocular vision. I also learned from you, Ed, that uh, catfish are particularly good at tasting. What do they do with uh, with their whole bodies? Uh, they taste with their whole bodies. So catfish are basically like swimming tongues. They have taste buds all over their skin, um, and that allows them to detect the um, taste of prey in the water. Um, they, you know, they have some of the most incredible sense of taste in the in the uh, natural world. And they're a reminder that taste doesn't have to be something that just occurs in your mouth. You know, it can be a body wide sense. A lot of insects uh, do this too. Uh, a lot, of, many, many insects have taste receptors on their feet. So, you know, a mosquito uh, that is landing on you for a bite can taste your skin when it stands on you. A fly standing on an apple is tasting it while standing. One expert told you, if I were a catfish, I'd love to uh, jump into a vat of chocolate. You could taste it with your butt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I probably wouldn't recommend it, though, but sure. I'm sure none of the listeners are rushing to do so. Now, what are some of the most striking things about how animals view the world? So vision is, um, for those of us who can see, is our primary sense. And um, even there, though, there are just extraordinary differences in what animals do with vision. Um, so... Uh, birds, almost all birds have eyes on the sides of their heads, which means that their visual world wraps around them. You know, a heron standing stock still can see fish swimming underneath its feet. Um, a duck sitting on a pond can see the entirety of the sky without needing to turn its head. Many animals have more than two pairs of eyes. So jumping spiders have four pairs. The middle two uh, do sharp color vision. And the two on the side track movement. These are two tasks that we do with just one pair of eyes, but that other animals have do, do division of labor. They split certain tasks among separate pairs of eyes. And then there are animals with dozens or even hundreds of eyes, including really weird ones like scallops. Most listeners might have eat, only encountered scallops as these pucks of flesh on a plate. But scallops are beautiful um, animals uh, in these ornate shells. And those shells along their rims have dozens or hundreds of eyes that are actually pretty good. 
And then there are eyes that uh, work so much faster than we than ours do. There are eyes that see colors that we don't see. There are eyes that can see color even in darkness so intense that you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. The fact that we have two eyes facing forwards and they're on our heads is actually very strange. That, that's a bizarre setup for an animal. And there's a huge amount of other vari variation out there in terms of uh, eyes in nature. Most animals, you'd say, have uh, UV vision, ultraviolet. Yeah, um, ultraviolet is a colour at the far end of the rainbow beyond violet. It's literally what it means. It is a colour that humans can't see. But again, we are strange in that. Um, birds, bees, a lot of creatures can see UV. And when you do, a lot of the world looks very, very different. So flowers tend to have big, bright UV patterns on them, like bullseyes or landing strips that attract pollinating insects. Um, so things like sunflowers look just uniform yellow to us, but actually have these very vivid UV colors to them. Um, birds, a lot of their feathers have UV markings that we can't see and that birds can use to tell, for example, males and females apart in a way that human onlookers can't. Um, birds in general, because they can see UV and combine that with other colors in the way we have like red and blue equals purple, can just see this entire dimension of colors that we can't perceive, like a hundred times more hues than what we can detect. And that means their world is just kaleidoscopic and colorful in a way that I think is very hard to imagine. And yet there are some animals that have a form of color blindness. I remember being told a long time ago that bulls in the ritual of the bullfight, where they, you know, where they wave the, the red thing in front of them, can in fact not see red. Right. They can't see red, but uh, it's not true that they can't see colour at all. And that's a common myth about things like dogs. But uh, animals like dogs, cows, cats and so on can, in fact, see colour. It's just a much more limited um, set of colours than what most people see. So to the bull, that red cloth is going to look like a dark, muddy yellow. Um, to my dog, you know, the green grass outside is going to look kind of grey. Um, the, his purple, his favourite uh, violet toy is going to look blue. Um, it's it's actually very similar to what people with red-green colour blindness see. Um, that's closest that humans get to having um, dog-like vision. And at the other end of the spectrum, we've got the mantis shrimp, which has the most unusual sense of sight of all, because they uh, they can have twelve-dimensional colour vision. Well, that's not quite true, though. They have, um, while humans have three kinds of color sensing cells in our eyes, and mantis shrimps have 12, um, it actually isn't the case that mantis shrimps see this all of these extra dimensions of colors. They're doing something very, very different with their color vision. If you actually ask a mantis shrimp to tell the difference between, say, like orange and yellow, they, they can't. They're actually worse at discriminating between colors than pretty much anything that's ever been tested. What they seem to do with their 12 color sensing cells is to convert the beautiful palette of the natural world into basically a children's coloring book, into 12 different shades. And then they'll do very simple calculations, like if cells like 1, 5, 6, and 10 are firing, 
maybe that's blue and that's a piece of food and they should attack it. Um, or if it's like three, six, seven, and eight, that might be a mate. Uh, and they'll probably also attack it because it's a mantis shrimp. They're incredibly violent. Ed, let's talk about pain. Clearly animals experience pain in various ways that are not the, quite the same as us. Yes, and, and you say that's clear, but actually I think that's a, a point of huge debate. Uh, most people either believe that all animals feel pain like humans do or that none of them feel pain like humans do. And, and I think both positions are, are wrong. There's, like all senses, there is a huge amount of variation in the middle. So um, squid and octopuses are a really good example of this. If you injure a squid on one of its arms, it will feel pain, but it won't actually be able to tell which arm is injured. It seems to, that, that injury seems to trigger a whole body hypersensitivity as if you stub your toe and suddenly like your shoulder is sore to the touch. With an octopus, it's very different. Their, their sense of pain is, is very similar to what we experience. If you bruise an octopus's arm, it will cradle the arm, it will groom it, it will nurse the wound. And I think that's because these two animals can do very different things with an injury. An octopus can has long dexterous arms and can tend to an injury. A squid cannot, and so has evolved an experience of pain that um, is very different and that is, is sort of tailored to its particular body and its particular senses. And I think by, con by condensing this question of whether animals feel pain into that very simple binary, we're overlooking a lot of these bigger variations and subtle variations in what they're actually experiencing. An old friend of mine, Benny Lewin, with whom I've made a number of films, made a film called Strange Case of Cruelty to Prawns and was about a, a girl in a Scottish prawn factory who plopped a, a prawn on a hot plate and it became a very famous court case. So the feeling of pain has moral, legal and even economic implications. It is, and that's why this question of whether animals feel pain um, is so charged. Um, but, you know, as we see in all of the senses, in, in vision, in hearing, in touch, there's just an enormous amount of variation there um, that isn't just, you know, do animals see yes or no? It's more about in what way do they see? And the same kinds of questions could be asked about the experience of pain. So, Ed, we're only just beginning to unlock the mysteries of of the animal's sensory world. So there's much more to learn? There's so much more to learn. Um, you know, one of the people I talked to, a sensory biologist named Sonke Jonsson, published a paper just a few years ago saying, uh, called Sensory Biology. We don't really know anything, do we? Like We've, we've uncovered um, so much uh, over centuries of work, but it feels like for every creature, there are mysteries left to um, explore. And then there's the fundamental problem of sensory biology, which is that you just cannot actually know what is going on inside an animal's head. Now, I can guess what my dog experiences when he sniffs the world. I can talk about what a hummingbird might see in a flower, but I don't really know. You can't actually get inside the animal's head. Um, so science, you know, and good writing, I hope, can get us a lot of the way there, but 
in the end, there's always going to be that gulf, and that gulf can only be crossed through effortful feats of imagination. You have to want to learn what it is like to be another animal. And I think that is one of the most profound things we can do as humans. I think it is a very worthwhile gift that we should cherish. So we we should be showing more empathy towards the animals uh, that we interact with, shouldn't we? That's absolutely right. Uh, the, An Immense World is a book that is fundamentally about curiosity and about empathy. I, I think that empathy is self-rewarding. It changes our understanding of the animals around us and of the world around us in very enriching ways. But it also shows ways in which we fail the creatures around us, either in grandiose ways, like by polluting the world with light and with sound. Uh, we are harming the creatures around us, everything from migrating birds to um, hatchling sea turtles. We are harming and sometimes killing through light and sound pollution. But even the animals close to us, um, many dog owners will yank their dogs along on a walk because they see the walk purely as exercise or travel. But a walk is also a chance to explore, and dogs explore with their noses, which takes time. Um, by pulling a dog along on a walk without letting it sniff, it's a little like going on a hike and having your friend cover your eyes every time you see a beautiful <laughs> view. It's a horrible experience, and, and yet that's actually what a lot of us are doing to our dogs. So, you know, I think thinking about the Umwelt concept, thinking about how animals sense the world, gives us better insight in how to treat them better. You wrote the book after reporting on the pandemic. Can you tell me briefly what it was like to report on covid in the US? It was bloody horrible. <laughs> we, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong and continues to go wrong. Uh, America had the worst COVID outbreak of the industrialized world for many reasons, uh, in part because many facets of its society were weak um, and ill-prepared and continue to be. Um, you know, then there is the, 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 the long-term effects of COVID um, continue to plague us. Um, I've written extensively about the problem of long COVID, about symptoms that extend for months or even years after the initial infection. That problem is not going away. There are millions of people who've been disabled and continue to be disabled by um, the new coronavirus. Uh, and we need to grapple with that. Um, those pieces too are about curiosity and about empathy. It's about trying to understand the lives of people who've been severely harmed and now are very different than what healthy people experience. We need to understand that because any of us could be part of that group at any time. And it makes our responsibilities to them that much clearer, just as you know, thinking about animal senses makes our responsibilities to the natural world clearer. Ed, thank you for that. Ed Yong, Pulitzer Prize-winning science journalist and the author of An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realm Around Us. And Ed will be appearing at the Wheeler Centre on Saturday, October the 14th. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.